Welcome to Storytelling Animals, a green new podcast where we use books to make sense of the ecological crisis and think about how to move forward. I'm your host, Dayton Martindale, and my guest today is the Australian fiction writer Laura Jean McKay. She is the author of the short story collection Holiday in Cambodia, and most recently, The Animals in That Country, which came out in 2020 and won multiple prizes, including last year's Arthur C. Clarke Award for science fiction novels. The book is about a rough-around-the-edges grandmother named Jean, who works at a wildlife park, a dingo at that park named Sue, and what happens to these two and the rest of the world when humans and other species start gaining the ability to understand what each other are saying. McKay also has a PhD in literary animal studies, so we talk about her book as part of a growing wave of novels that seek to give voice to other animals, and how these can encourage readers to recognize that Humans are not the center of the universe, but part of a larger, in some ways scary and humbling, but also more wondrous world. We're both concerned about the massive violence inflicted on animals by our current economic and social systems, and hopeful that fiction is one means of awakening people to that violence. Uh, So that's something we discussed too. As always, please consider supporting this podcast on Patreon. Um, We'll be holding our first monthly book club for supporters on Wednesday, February 23rd at 5.30 p.m. Pacific, 8.30 Eastern, to discuss The Great Derangement by Amitabh Ghosh. All right, now to the interview. Hi, I'm here with Laura Jean McKay, the author of The Animals in That Country. Um, Thanks for coming on the show, Laura. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this book. So the kind of the major instigator of the plot for the animals in that country is a flu that gives humans enhanced ability to communicate with other animals. And we'll talk more about what this communication looks like in a bit. But first, I just want to ask about the origins of your interest in writing about animals, because this isn't, from what I understand, primarily what your your first book of short stories was about. Yeah. Um... I guess I mean I was I was raised rurally um, on a farm um, with a family, um, a sort of fairly matriarchal family who were fairly obsessed with animals. Um, I can't walk along the street with my mum now, you know, and 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 see a dog or a or a bird without her, you know, stopping and clutching my arm <laughs> you know we have to we have to stare at the animal for a while often laughing you know like at the amazing you know sort of laughing in wonder at the amazing thing the animal is doing you know a duck mm-hmm. tipping upside down to to get the little the little insects under the water and its, its tail sticking up comically um so they were always very much there we never really called ourselves animal lovers just sort of but that there was such a huge presence, and I started um, I started wondering what would happen if we could communicate if the language barrier was taken away and we could communicate with these creatures that we spend a lot of time with that we rely on very much so as humans, uh, but that we often disregard and and have often quite violent relationships with. And this really came from some of the encounters that I was having, especially as I started to think about this idea. One in particular was very, very early on in the piece, so about three years before I started really writing the novel. I was on a writer's residency out in the bush uh, on the outskirts of Melbourne in Australia, and I was going along a dark path at night. And I came face to face with a full-size male kangaroo. Wow. Now, a a male kangaroo by themselves, um, you know, in the wild is often one who has been uh, kicked out of of what what we call a mob, the the, um, sort of collective noun for kangaroos, um, and is off by themselves. And they're often considered quite dangerous. And and this kangaroo was my height, you know. (laughs) Um, So usually I should have felt quite afraid and the kangaroo himself should have been quite afraid as well because humans in general in Australia um, you know will often shoot and kill kangaroos they're you know they are they are killed even though um, they're a native animal Uh, but we both just 
stared into each other's eyes and did a little dance to try to get around each other and then sort of went along our way. And for a few days after, he hung around the house just eating grass and then eventually he disappeared. I think he was quite old, maybe a bit sick. And I just started thinking, if I was on a dark path at night and a full-grown adult male human had appeared, <laughs> I would not be standing there calmly. I would be, mm -hmm. you know, grabbing my keys. Um, <laughs> you know, it would be fight or flight. Um, and, you know, what an amazing experience to share that moment with a completely different species and share this sort of mutual, quite benevolent exchange. And then I thought, well, what, what would have happened if we, if we could have said things to each other? And that really, really started to fuel every encounter that I was having with other animals, whether it was okay. you know, pigeons on the street, an ant that crawled into the house. I started really thinking, well, what, what is actually happening there? And what is happening in this exchange? And what is the power dynamic? between the two of us right now and what do I do in my life um, in my relationship with other animals? Yeah, I think, um, I like I said, I want to talk more about that communication, but um, I have a question about one other sort of encounter you had with another species, which was while researching the book, you went to a, a great ape sanctuary in Florida um, mm -hmm. and there aren't really apes who feature heavily in the book at least in the the final draft so how did how did that experience impact the writing oh i'm so glad you asked about that um that was such an amazing experience uh i went over because i became i was doing a bit of research into different animal encounters and i i became fascinated by the um the stars <laughs> of mm. of tv and film um who are chimpanzees and orangutans and what becomes of them it was sort of a where are they now you know you see mm -hmm. those exposés on macaulay calkin um you know I, so i was thinking well where are they now where is the chimpanzee who was in seinfeld um you know uh where are where are these different stars and i found out you know through very little research that often they're sent to be once they become fully grown adults they're too big to control so a lot of the the animals that we see um, on screen are, are babies or, um, or infants mm. um, and they often get sent to be experimented on in, in universities um, or they get sent to roadside zoos which are pretty horrific conditions and places like the center for great apes in florida and there are also other fantastic organizations often in florida um, have created sanctuaries often not open to the public so I was lucky enough to be able to um, you know to be able to visit there as as a guest uh, and they're these places they're basically retirement homes for, <laughs> for chimpanzee and orangutan <laughs> stars one of the chimpanzees um, who is housed there is Bubbles who was Michael Jackson's ex uh, old companion chimpanzee wow. and Bubbles uh, Bubbles sort of flatmate is a chimpanzee called Ripley and I had such a strange experience with Ripley because I I sat down um, so basically you're in this place where there are enclosures there's a network of interlinked enclosures all around you so in a way you become the <laughs> the um, caged animal and the uh -huh. chimpanzee sort of roam all around you it's quite an uncanny decentering experience so that uh -huh. in itself was incredible and I became, I was writing in my notebook and I became aware that someone was watching me and I looked up and I saw, you know how sometimes you just meet someone and you know that they're going to be your friend and you think, wow, that, that person seems, you know, I want to talk to that person. Sure, yeah. you know, they interest me. And I was looking at this other being thinking, wow, I, I, feel like, I feel like I know you. And in that moment, we weren't a chimpanzee and a human. I felt like we were just two beings who recognised each other. Mm. And that experience was so, again, just like with the kangaroo, it was so sort of uncanny and not one that that I think we take the time to pay attention to. But because I was starting to turn towards this sort of inquiry, it, it really impacted me and my writing. And as you said, um, there is there are no chimpanzees in uh, in the animals in that country, but I feel like that moment, that exchange with Ripley, influenced every single encounter that we find in the novel. So mm. it completely changed the way that I had the human characters and the other animal characters interacting. That that moment of 
of exchange where you sort of look across the often not very big gap um, between yourself and a hairy or feathery or scaly other <laughs> and and um, you know and reach out yeah I think that that gap and how big it is is um, definitely something that I was thinking about a lot as I read the novel so you you you've situated your your book within kind of a broader landscape of what you call in your in your PhD dissertation uh, fauna fiction. Um, I I really like that term. Could you just briefly just define that for us? Yeah, sure. So I felt uh, so I was doing a PhD looking at interspecies communication to sort of try to support um, the writing that I was trying to do, and I felt that there were terms. Um, through which we could discuss our relationship with the broader environment and you know eco-criticism mm -hmm. um, really really looks at that but at the time and I think this is definitely changing especially through the work of um, you know Graham Huggin and, and Helen Tiffin and a lot of other theorists that you know there is more of a focus on on how we interact with uh, the non-human animal world but I felt that in fiction particularly we needed a term that that showed that animals, <laughs> as well as human animals, are certainly part of our environment, and of course um, should be taken into account where when we're discussing ecological um, concerns. But that then also needed to be a distinct term uh, to discuss what animal characters are and what they are doing and what we are doing to them in fiction. And it was really just a way for me to be able to really focus in on that and say, well, um, what what happens when a non-human animal character appears in fiction? I know what happens when they appear in film. Um, I've got a I've got another theory that I'm developing um, called Chekhov's dog, where I feel like <laughs> if a dog appears in a film, um, you know, in a realist film, um, and and um, you know that it's going to die by the end. Like that's because it's it's <laughs> no. a symbol. It's a symbol uh -huh. for human meaning. And in literature, it's always like the dog is, you know, symbolizes the man's loneliness and his troubled childhood. And you know, he <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> really can't form relationships. And um, and and I think that there is a place for that. There is definitely a place for for symbol and, and metaphor in fiction. Of course, that's you know, that's how we write. But there is also a case for the literal, for the animal to be an animal in and of itself mm -hmm. within the fictional work and to be a full character that is not necessarily a, an anthropomorphized character, though we can't help that, <laughs> um, but is, is its own animal self as much as we can make it um, in human language. Yeah, I think that there are sort of, broadly speaking, and you kind of distinguish between these two different ways authors can approach this. One is to make make the animal character speak more in you know in complete sentences, totally fluent in in human language. Um, mm. And the other is to let them retain a little more of their animality, either their their chimpanzee hood or their their dingo hood. Mm. In in your case, mm -hmm. and for whatever reason, when I was going into your book, I I, what I knew was that, you know, a flu spread and, and people could understand, humans could understand other animals. And I was expecting those other animals to speak in, you know, hi there, I'm a dingo named Sue, just kind of complete sentences. Um, and one of, <laughs> I think, kind of the most exciting reading experiences was relatively early on, you find out that, that is not at all how the animals in your, in your novel speak. <laughs> Um, without giving too much away, they they communicate not only through the noises they make, but through you know the scents they emit, the positioning of their ears and nose and tail, their their posture, the set of their fur or feathers, and the the human characters hear and interpret all this as as messages in English, but they're they're messages that are difficult to understand, like haphazard snippets of poetry or some sort of fever dream. I saw another reviewer or interviewer called them uh, hallucinogenic haikus. Um, <laughs> how how did you decide what these animals would sound like? Mm. 
it was a real it was a really long journey um and i i kind of I, I said this before but i feel like i was sort of wrote three books i wrote you know a realist pretty realist book about a woman who's going through a crappy time um, and ha has trouble connecting to humans. And I wrote a, a speculative fiction novel in which uh, as a, a pandemic zoo flu enables people to communicate with other animals. And then there's this thread, it's not really a novel, but I feel like it's this thread that runs through, which is the animal, the non-human animal dialogue. And that needed to be treated almost separately and then sort of woven in to the text. And with early drafts, you know, and I rewrote the thing about, completely about three times, Definitely in that first draft, there was no animal language. And my partner, who's a Tom Doig, who's a fantastic editor and writer, said, you know, this is I love this, I love this talking animal novel, but where are the talking animals? They're not there. <laughs> so then I had to go and <laughs> and mm -hmm. write the thing again. Um, and I realized I was just I was just working through this sort of horror of anthropomorphism. And once I got over that and once I acknowledged the fact that I'm a I am a very simple animal, I think all humans are. I don't have many abilities. I can't fly. I can't use sonar. I just have this thing called language, and that's my power. Mm -hmm. So I needed to use that and embrace that in order to, um, you know, engage with how the animals would speak here. And I'd, I'd had an experience where I'd been bitten by a mosquito um, on a on a writers um, a writers festival journey, and. Uh, it had given me a disease called chikungunya, which sort of rendered me fairly immobile for about two years. It gives you full body arthritis. I could I could barely move. Strange fever dreams. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I thought, if if a mosquito, if this tiny tiny little animal, could could bite me and then give a lick, which which just dominated me, my body, and changed my body, um, you know, for years, if not forever then, you know, that's that's an incredible thing. So what would a mosquito say? What does this mm. powerful animal say? And I realised they would say things in all caps on the page. They would yell. They would be joyfully screaming their intention, you know. Uh -huh. um, and this mosquito loved blood. And so why shouldn't she, and it was a she um, tiger mosquito, why shouldn't she just fling herself at me screaming, blood, blood? <laughs> And, and once I had that on the page, that gave me um, license I, in my own writing to explore what birds would say. And so I, I played with italics for them. And then um, Dingo Sue, who, who is the, really the star of the book, uh, because she, she lives sort of a dual life of being institutionalised um, in a wildlife park and, and also a wild animal. She speaks with with many parentheses, so she always has this other dingo voice saying the opposite of of what it seems that she's saying. And so I started to really have fun on the page, and um, and I and also to experience on the page what I feel I experience when I stare at another animal, which is often wonder, um, you know, and play, and that's mm -hmm. one of the joyful things. There are a lot of terrible, terrible things in our interactions with other animals but one of the most amazing and joyful things i think is that we can stare at each other with complete unknowingness and go into that space especially in this world where we have to know everything of just not knowing much and just going what is that crow thinking <laughs> when <laughs> it looks at me <laughs> because it is really staring at me right now <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> well yeah let's talk about the dingo Sue and your human main character. Uh, what? Where do these two characters come from? Yeah. Um, so it took me a long time to find Jean, who is the the main character, human character, and the person who narrates the book. She was oh, she was like a a guy who just sat on a couch watching a cat walk past him for a while. She was a cat. Um, she went through a lot of iterations um mm -hmm. you know maybe a hundred thousand words and then um i was actually reading an otessa moshpeg um short story um called bettering oneself i think it is and it's it's about a, a school teacher who who you know has a alcohol reliance problem but sort of maintains it and manages to be a teacher and go along and sort of impress and horrify the staff and students mm -hmm. and i just thought what a what a what a freeing character. And at the time, I because I was I was so sick, I really couldn't drink anymore. And I'd been quite a 
uh, a joyful beer drinker. And so I sort of put that, uh, I made Jean, I gave Jean my my beer drinking, um, except she's, you know, a lot more reliant on it than I am because she's going mostly through a very hard time. And once she sort of started sort of strutting through the pages, you know, with a cigarette in one hand and, you know, a beer in the other, all the while driving, <laughs> um, you know, that was just such a nice moment. But mm -hmm. the big change actually for me with Jean was, um, was in realising that she was a middle-aged woman. Um, I really, the reason why I found it quite hard to find her, I think, was because none of the other characters could carry the weight of the animal apocalypse and the weight of this pandemic. And I thought, who who is strong enough for this? And I mm. realised, you know, a middle-aged woman, She's she's been through stuff, she's going through a bad divorce, you know, she finds people hard, she's really, really tough. She's the toughest person that I could think of. She's the one who can bear this weight. And once I had her, then, you know, her granddaughter Kimberly came along, which was wonderful. Um, but she still wasn't quite making sense on the page. I was still having difficulty with her uh, when suddenly um, the dingo slew appeared. And that was because I was living up in a wildlife park in the Northern Territory of Australia and, and spending a lot of time staring at dingoes. And once Dingo Sue appeared on the page, and I didn't really I didn't really sort of think about her being there. She just sort of came on the page one day. Once she was there, she made sense of Jean and Jean made sense of her. And suddenly they just took off together. They were sort of, um, one of my friends has described it as a um, Thelma and Louise, you know, with a grandma and a dingo mm. <laughs> type story. Uh -huh. Yeah, it becomes like a buddy road trip movie here. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, Jean works at this this wildlife park. She considers herself someone who likes animals. She likes thinking about what they might be saying. So when she first hears rumors of this flu that that gives people the ability to to understand what other animals are saying, she she actually kind of wants it. Um, she thinks, oh, this, that actually could be pretty fun. Um, do you, do you yeah. think you would want it? <laughs> I mean, in a way I felt like I had it because with, with chikungunya, with mosquito disease, I, I became so delirious and, and my body changed so much and, and all the skin was peeling off my body because of the fever. And I thought the only thing that I could work out that was happening to me was that I was turning into a mosquito. That was the only <laughs> rational uh -huh. explanation for what was and then once I thought that, I thought, oh okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. I can I can have a rest <laughs> now. <laughs> um so I guess in a way I felt that that was a sort of a communication. Um having said that, I I I expressed this to my partner, you know, saying, you know, wouldn't it be quite cool if if we could speak to other animals? And he said He's and he's a very happy person. He's the happiest person, <laughs> you know. He's a very sunny person. Uh -huh. He said, "I would want to die, um, <laughs> because because they would then they would tell us what we were doing to them. They would tell mm. us exactly what uh, they think of us, and I think it would be so awful that I would want to die. And that was so him saying that was so horrifying, and it made me made me realize how overwhelming it would be." Um, mm -hmm. if if we actually knew or had a sense of of the other animal experience, especially where we're involved. But the other horror, I think, and this, this would perhaps be the greater shock, would be that we would realise how unnecessary <laughs> we are, largely, hmm. to a majority of, of the animal world. Um, you know, except, uh, other than companion animals, maybe, and there's, you know, there's for and against arguments for that as well. Mm -hmm. Pretty much any other animal in the world would probably be better off and and doesn't really, wouldn't be impacted by <laughs> mm -hmm. the lack of humans. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this really, this really came to me, especially when I was up in the Northern Territory and there were these incredible um sort of ant hills that are tomb shaped they're built they really do look like tombs they're i'm not sure what sort of ants they are but they and, okay. and they all sit um in these arid sort of fields like a cemetery um but they are filled with these bustling cities of ants 
And unless humans come along and basically run them over, which probably happens every now and then, Mm-hmm. They are not concerned with us. They are not involved with us. They don't care about us. They're just doing their thing. And that is so wonderful, but also I think quite confronting because humans are used to uh, thinking of ourselves as the centre of, of all and uh, for all else that surrounds us, including other humans sometimes, um, for that to be there for our use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the the most interesting decisions you make in the book is when you start hearing about this this flu spreading, there's some people who respond to it by becoming animal liberationists and they they break into farms or labs and, and let the animals free. And, you know, you and, and lots of people have said thanks to the effect of, you know, if, if pigs could talk, we we would probably stop eating them. Um, but I guess. The, the book takes kind of an ambiguous stance toward that, because on the other hand, there's people who hear their dogs start talking and kick the do- you know, close the door on their dog and, and lock the door. Yeah. There are people who just kind of get lost in conversation with an ant. And there are people who, you know, start scrubbing clean every corner of their house and, and lacing poison to keep the ants out. Uh, how <laughs> the, the net effect is sort of a a partial societal breakdown, but how did you sort of think about what this would mean society-wide? Mm. Such a good question. I mean, I think I'm always interested in the nuance of, of any problem or, or quandary, um, no matter what my stance is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I started writing the book, I was eating meat and by the time I finished it, I was vegan. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, you know, went on this, on this, you know, sort of intense personal sort of, um, you know, exploration uh-huh. in, in what I was doing. Um, and something that, that I think is so important. Um, and again, I bring, I bring up my partner here um, because, you know, he's very handy because he's a, he's a, a, a journalist and a nonfiction writer, so you know he's he's often sort of thinking thinking ethically um, in the way that fiction writers don't always do that to it. And you know he's he's sort of said says um, you know if you're going to turn the spotlight on an issue, you should turn the spotlight on yourself first of all. And that's really what I'm doing in my fiction. It's what I did in Holiday in Cambodia, I hope. And and what I was doing here was sort of like well. It's all very well to point the finger at, you know, all the bad humans and, and um, how we interact with other animals, but what am I doing myself? So I guess that's where that sort of um, slightly ambiguous stance comes from because I wanted to I wanted to think about the way that lots of different people would, would react to a certain situation. And that certainly plays out in the pandemic that we faced right now as well. Um, some people um, react by by hiding inside. Some people react by following every government directive. Others, um, you know, especially people who haven't necessarily been able to rely on on governments or or police and things like that, you know, uh, want to react against that. Some people are are, are using their fear and, you know, misplacing it or or directing it in different ways. You know, it's, it's really fascinating to me the different reactions that, that we are having and also very disappointing, mm-hmm. um, you know, the way that we collectively as humans have really stuffed up <laughs> our response, you know, to this, you know, there have been so many opportunities to, mm-hmm. to um, you know, save vulnerable people that the governments in particular haven't, haven't taken up or have just been grossly um, incompetent with um and i i think that was you know playing out of course i wrote the book before i i knew what <laughs> covid was that it, it is in the response to that it was it was written in the seven years prior to that but um you know it was definitely something that i was interested in what happens when you put a whole heap of people in this situation that isn't necessarily all bad um but it's not good either <laughs> mm-hmm. um how do they react you know what what are they made of Kurt Vonnegut says, you know, in his rules of how to write short fiction, you know, put characters in horrible situations in order to see what they're made of. And, and I think that's, that's a good one. <laughs> uh-huh. But it's not necessarily mm-hmm. horrible either. You know, it's, mm-hmm. um, it's, also, it's also this, as I said before, this moment of wonderment where 
not only can the characters stare at other animals, but the animals are staring back. And not only that, they are answering back. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. what do they say? I do want to ask about, as I'm sure everyone does, um, what it was like to write a book about a flu pandemic. And then right mm -hmm. before it comes out, uh, the coronavirus outbreak began. Um, when, when I first looked at the, the release date for your book, it was in like mid 2020. And I was like, oh, that's a, a year and a half ago. That must have been before the virus. And I thought about it. I was like, oh, we've just been with the virus a very long time. Um, yes. And so, yeah, how did you first decide to include a pandemic in your novel? And then did you did you end up making any edits when the real one broke out? Or was it all pretty set by then? Yeah, I um, I mean, it was very, it was very sort of mechanical. Um, the way that the zoo flu was put into the novel, I basically I needed a whole heap of characters to suddenly be able to communicate with other animals. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and one of the best ways to do that is for everyone to get sick at the same time. Because otherwise you have, you know, aliens or government conspiracies or, you know, people tapping the water or something like that, you mm -hmm. know, but I wanted it to be a little bit more organic than that. And I had worked in a previous life as an aid worker um, responding in a communications way to the to the SARS epidemic. And so I did have a sense of, of how these things played out. Um, I didn't tell people when I was, if I did ever discuss the novel with people, which I, I don't often do in the writing, I didn't often mention the pandemic subplot because when I did people seemed to think it was quite far-fetched and how ridiculous and um you know that's not going that's not going even and even if this is a sci-fi novel it seems a bit twee and that's not going to happen uh -huh. um <laughs> so then you know fast forward to almost publication date you know the book has gone to print uh, <laughs> we're working out how you know where the marketing has sort of been done we've had all these mm -hmm. discussions and then this, these reports start to come out. You know, there's, a, there's an epidemic, there's a new flu, oh, it's jumped the border, um, you know, it's, it's here, it's there. And I was flown over to Sydney to record the audiobook just as it was really starting to become a thing. You know, and I put, I, my, I got a whole heap of masks and, and wore them over. But I was going into an audio booth eight hours a day and talking about, um, you know, governments, you know, not handling things well in the book and and supermarket shelves being cleared of toilet paper and fights breaking out and, you know, people wearing masks and strange new symptoms. And then I would emerge from the audio booth to be in a Sydney where so in that eight-hour period, the entire news cycle and the entire pandemic cycle had changed. And I'd go into the supermarket and there was no toilet paper and everyone was wearing masks. And mm -hmm. it was so uncanny it was so weird um it was so scary and i was so worried that you know i would i would upset people because people were suffering you know people were dying and and still are um and i thought god i've, I've written this book you know this fictional book and you know i hope that that people won't suffer because of it um you know it won't make them feel bad but mm. you know as it turned out i think it was Similar enough, you know, for people to be interested, um, I think, but, you know, different enough that they, they didn't have to go through yeah. <laughs> their own lives all over again. Uh -huh. and, and I myself found myself reading, you know, I read um, Ling Ma's um, incredible book, Severance, um, right in the middle of, of the strict New Zealand lockdown in 2020. You know, I, I read it as a fantastic book, but also almost as a guide. Like, how do I deal with pandemics? Mm, <laughs> Please help me, brilliant fictional author. <laughs> <you know? laughs> but I, and of course, then my entire life went online. You know, I had a world mm -hmm. trip planned, and and everything, all the live events collapsed. But um, you know, I, I became this sort of online talk bot who, you know. <laughs> We spoke about the novel, um, you know, as we all did. We all we all sort of turned very inward and and went to our rooms and turned to our screens. It was quite strange. So you mentioned that part of the horror that your your partner had brought up at the idea of mm. 
hearing what other animals were saying is thinking about what human society as it is, is, is doing to them. Um, and you also mentioned that you became vegan over the course of writing the book. Mm. So I'm curious just how this research and writing progress uh, impacted how you think about other animals and the sort of political, economic, social relations we are in with them. Mm. Oh, it changed it completely. And that's what I want in the writing of a book. I think, I mean, I've mm. only written two books that have been published. I have, you know, all those manuscripts in the drawer, but I think I don't want to go into a project that's going to take me years if it's not going to change me and, and you know, better me <laughs> in uh -huh. some way or make me see the world in a different way. That's why I'm going into this because I've noticed something about myself that, you know, that maybe doesn't seem right or doesn't fit right or I want to, I want to pick at it or explore it more deeply. And yeah. so by the end of it, I'm probably going to be changed. Uh, I did an incredible course, um, you know, back back when I was writing my first book with a with the author Stephen Carroll, and he said, when you come out the other side of a novel, you should be physically and emotionally and mentally ravaged. You know, you should be absolutely spent because then you know that you've put your everything into it. Um, mm -hmm. And and I I think that's true. I I I want to become obsessed, and I want to. You know, examine the the problem from every angle, and I don't want to find answers though either. I want to ask questions. I want to mm -hmm. ask the hard questions, and and first and foremost, I'm asking those hard questions of myself. And so you say, say sorry, I'm, I'm I didn't really answer your question. You know, how has it changed <laughs> my relationship? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I don't. You know, after writing a book like that, and after doing a PhD on the subject, and meeting so many incredible scholars in what we call animal studies, you know, who are constantly thinking about these problems and asking these hard questions. You know, I, I don't look at an animal in the same way. I do speak to flies and say, you know, what are you doing here? You're not, I don't want you in my house. Like who asked you here? <laughs> you know, <laughs> get uh -huh. up. But I also, you know, cap capture them gently and, and guide them outside as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's not, and that's not to say that I'm a, you know, I'm I'm not really I'm not a vegan scholar. I don't. It's it's sort of more of a personal thing for me. I don't really know so much about about that area in terms of of academia or activism. Even though I've learnt from those people a lot, um, and it's really helped me. But I just I just think that once you start to take a step back um, and decenter yourself and and realise that you know I am not the only being in this world not only am i surrounded by other mm -hmm. people but but people are surrounded by you know this extraordinarily rich communicative you know exchange um you know the slowness of of tree communication which suddenly everybody's <laughs> you know very excited by and, and realizing um you know the the amazing abilities and superpowers that other animals have in just in the celebration of, of their bodies and what they can do let alone their inner world um you know the fact that they are born and they die and they live and they love and they hurt and they play um that's very exciting and it's it's a relief in a way to stop being so obsessed with the human world and to start to say well what what am I in this place and, and what can I do to to change things and I'm still pondering that you know I don't I don't mm -hmm. do enough I'm a you know I'm a, I'm a cis white woman living you know in a as a colonial person in a you know in a western westernized country you know mm -hmm. I'm <laughs> I'm the most you know privileged person on the planet um I you know I don't do enough this space and you know I I hope that I will spend the rest of my life trying to work out how to do better, especially through literature. <laughs> yeah, I think I think literature can can help, maybe not solve, but work through some of those questions for the person mm. who writes it. Um, but also, mm. uh, you know, ideally the the readers. Um, with the previous podcast guest, uh, the wildlife journalist Emma Maris, we talked about. Um, at one point, the potential for sort of having legally appointed representatives for other individual animals and species when there's mm. legal disputes and or, you know, 
city meetings on on conservation issues, town halls or whatever. Um, mm. And I think books like yours and, and maybe other fauna fiction do a valuable creative task in helping helping people think people who are involved in, in democratic decision making, which ideally should be more of us, uh, mm. in mm. in thinking about what other creature voices would would sound like and say if if they were in the room and if we we tried seriously to to consider their interests. Um, so I don't know. That was just one one thing that came to mind. But what do you see as uh, you know, something that not only your own book, the, that too, but also fauna fiction more generally, books where the main characters aren't necessarily all human, uh, can, mm. what, what can those supply to a, a reader who maybe hasn't thought as much about it, or even if they have thought about a lot of it? Because I think sometimes readers of, of books like this, it can take a moment to say like, wait, the, the main character's a dingo? Are you sure? Like, you know, it's mainly like children's books or myths, but um, yes, <laughs> yeah. What what can that bring to readers? I mean, I think it can completely change your worldview. Um, when I read Eva Hornung's Dog Boy, I I didn't ever look at a dog in the same way again. Mm. Um, the same with um, the sound of a wild snail eating. Um, I don't I don't know how you could come out of that very short book, uh, which is a nonfiction book. Um, I mean, you know, there's not a snail I see now that I don't, you know, escort across the uh, a treacherous, <laughs> a treacherous pathway. Oh, I need um, to read that. Suddenly, you're you're down, you're down, and you are a tiny with them, and you get to see the world on this on this very very small scale. And you know, literature has that effect. And anyone who who thinks that that words matter. Um, and we're surrounded by words, so surely they do. You know, must also believe that that literature can can change things in that way. And there are some extraordinary extraordinary authors working in this space. When I first came into the space, you know, people laughed at me um, when I said what I was doing. But of course, there were there were so many sort of writing elders who who had mm-hmm. paved the way. Um, and, and especially, you know, of, of course, George Orwell, who you know everybody says that that. Um, that Animal Farm is an allegory for Stalinism. Yes, it is. But George Orwell also says that it was inspired by seeing a, a young boy beating a giant pack horse, and you know, relating that to sort of, um, you know, to sort of the state concerns. So it's mm-hmm. it's like that thing that I was talking about earlier that something can be both allegorical and literal and, mm-hmm. and occupy that same space. Another incredible author is Suniti Nam Joshi. Um, whose work um, the conversations of cow is a metaphor it's a it's a metamorphosing it's a conversation between a woman and a metamorphosing cow and it's a love story and it's just <laughs> mind-blowing um you know what she does imaginatively um in in that space is, is so exciting and another author that i really love if people haven't come across her work is ellen van Nieven's uh story collection water and life and there's a novella in there called water which is are basically about about plant people, um, mm. about indigenous sovereignty, um, you know, about about love. It is just it's the most mind blowing story. So these are things that you know they they these stories excite you and they challenge you and they pressure you to to try harder and to think differently and to have different conversations. And also the other thing about literature is that it's slow and we live in a live in a world that is just coming at us like a like a freight train, like a jet plane. And literature allows us to slow down and and think and it is slow to write and it is slow to read and we need that so badly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I want to ask uh, two more questions that are get a little later in the plot. Um, so mm-hmm. people who haven't read the book yet, uh, I will... I will add in edits how far ahead you should skip. Please skip ahead 7 minutes and 25 seconds if you wish to avoid spoilers. Uh, <laughs> but so so first uh, I I have to ask about the whales. Um, so there's this kind of climactic scene toward the end where all these humans get entranced by this whale song calling them home 
and many of them start swimming out toward the whales and end up just drowning on mass. Um, mm. I, I found this scene incredibly haunting and powerful. And I'm curious where, um, where in the development of the novel did, did this scene come into, come into place? Oh, it's so exciting to be able to talk about this because often I'm, I'm, you know, not allowed to because of spoilers, mm-hmm. but you've already gave a warning. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so the whale scene, the whale scene came very, very early on in a piece. So, you know, say it took me around, you know, seven years in the, from, you know, writing to publication of the animals in that country. The whale scene was so early on um, and it didn't change very much. Um, my editor and I did develop it a little, especially around the whale voices, but it was just very much there. And in a way, the rest of the novel had to try to, <laughs> you know, live up to to that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know where it came from at all. Um, <laughs> I, only, <laughs> I only know that I studied photography in the 90s um, and I'm the worst photographer on the planet. But one thing that it did to me is it taught me about process, about the sort of a real passion for for art, artistic process. But it also sort of changed the way that I saw the world and, and it made me see in images. And so when I'm conceiving of a story, it often comes to me as a very clear image. And that image is often towards the end. Um, so I got a very clear image of, of this bay and these whales calling out to humans. And then also fasting forward, I, I also got a very clear image of the ending of the book. And mm-hmm. so for the next sort of, you know, you know, seven years, it was my job to get those images moving and to try to work out how how do I get to that point? How does a woman and a dog end up on a beach <laughs> with a whole, a whole heap of whales, you know, that are talking to them? And more importantly, what are the whales saying? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I also became really interested in, the idea that whales were, um, at one point, way back in, in in deep history, whales left the oceans and they sort of stumped around in this strange form on, on land for, a, a, you know, for quite a while. And then at one point they sort of went, you know what, it was great in the water. Um, there was food there. Our bodies were more, more you know, more mm-hmm. attuned to that environment. We're going back. And so in that scene, the whales are calling out to the humans, you know, come home. You know, you came from the water. Come back. It's better here. We've tried it out. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know, um, so they're they're calling out um, quite sort of um, you know in quite a friendly way, in quite a helpful way. You know, to the stupid humans who are still you know stumping around on land, but not 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 realizing that humans aren't advanced enough to come back to the water yet. We haven't. <laughs> we haven't rediscovered those skills, um, and so the human, when humans throw themselves in the water to be with the whales, they die. Mm-hmm. Well, one one last question. I know you have to go soon, um, but mm. um, at the very end, Jean gets a, a pill that, or some tr- treatment that takes care of the flu, and she loses her ability to understand. Sue and the other animals, and as mm. as chaotic and unsettling as having the flu was, and we talked about sort of the the horror aspects of being able to hear all these terrified animals and hear their strange foreign worlds. Um, but when she loses that ability, I I couldn't help feeling just this enormous sense of loss. Um, mm. Mm. What what are we as horrible as it can be to to listen to the voices of the other world, uh, of, of animal worlds, what are we giving up when we just sort of think of other life as voiceless? Mm. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're giving up the whole world, really, and, and we can see that um, through the climate crisis, uh, through the, you know, the extinction crisis. What we're giving up is is the beauty of, of this world that we're in and, and the, the horror that, you know, we're we're embracing the horror that we're that we've created, and so in that moment, I I did want it to be a moment of great loss, um, and I did, and this is the you know the big cynic <laughs> coming out to in me right at the end. You know, if I've been even-handed throughout the novel, um, I, I'm not at the end. Um, I think that humans will always ultimately choose humans, 
Um, mm. And in that moment, Jean, and all the way through the book, you know, Jean's a pain in the ass. She just does not listen to anyone, even mm-hmm. even the creature who supports her most, which is Sue, um, and who has stood by her and who is helping her. She she finds it too hard. It's a bit too hard to to follow a dingo. Um, and and she chooses she chooses the human world, and I really think that that that's what we do ultimately, and that we have to try really hard. I think that that is sort of innate in us to to choose ourselves, and that we have to try really hard not to do that. And we can. And if we're so great, <laughs> we're as great as we think we are. Uh-huh. We can we can choose that, but it takes effort. And so that's what I'm doing right at the end there. I'm I'm showing I'm. I'm showing Jean and and humans the the extraordinary loss um, that happens when we turn away from the non-human world um, and and make those choices. So, oh, and that was a scene that was that was such a clear image to me. Mm-hmm. Again, right from the start, there was a woman standing on a highway with a dingo, and I had to work out, or with a, with a canine actually. It wasn't a dingo at that point, some sort of canine, and I had to work mm-hmm. out what she was doing there. <laughs> She was losing everything, it turned out. Uh-huh. Oh, and one, one other thing I want to say about that is that, um, and I know Hemingway is very unpopular, but it was it was a little bit, um, I did draw from sort of Hemingway, just because I, I sort of grew up as a writer with, with Hemingway, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, ter- and he, his shadow looms way too large in the literary sort of world. But it, it was a big influence on me. And a lot of his stories, I think, are about a person who has nothing, who loses everything. Um, mm. That's the basic sort of Hemingway <laughs> story, and I wondered what would happen if that was a if that was a woman who you know who who loved animals. You know what mm-hmm. what is it to have nothing and lose everything in that way? And, and in this case, she loses she loses that connection with with Sue and and the other animal world. Well, spoiler section over. Um, thank you. <laughs> so much uh for joining me this was a super enjoyable um conversation and is there just anything else you want to add about the book or any of these themes we've talked about before i let you go oh it's just it's just so great to talk to you um you know my 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 trip to the states really really did influence the book so much even though you know in a way it's a very australian landscape and you know i'm so i'm so grateful to to anyone who's who's working in the space um, and you know has helped me and, and other people to think through these problems. So yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. And the book is The Animals in That Country. I'll put a, a link to the book in the description. And that was Laura Jean McKay. Thanks so much for coming on Storytelling Animals. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, uh If you enjoyed this, please feel free to rate, uh, follow the podcast, and share it with a friend, a family member, or even on social media. Thanks so much. Have a good day.